Well, as we do each week, we now turn to our Bibles to learn more about Jesus so that in turn we are transformed by the word of God and by the grace of God, we can be renewed and refreshed in the name of Jesus. So go ahead, turn to your Bibles in Mark chapter 15. If you're new to us today, especially if you're new to the Bible, Mark's gospel is found in the New Testament, that second half of your Bible, and it's one of four gospel accounts, accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Now we've been working through Mark's gospel for nearly 18 months now and last week we were with Jesus on trial before Pilate. We saw how the religious leaders had whipped up support for the crucifixion of Jesus. He had committed no crime but the people hated him anyway. He had done no wrong but Pilate sentenced him to death all the same. And through that passage we learned a vital lesson for the Christian. We're to stand out from the crowd and we're to be like Jesus. Today, as we continue through Mark 15, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion itself. And then next week, we'll consider the death of Christ on that cross. Now, often when we come to passages such as Mark 15, we tend to tell the story, but skip over the details. We feel uncomfortable reading the words, all the more when we apply the passage to our lives. That is because of the injustice, the suffering, but also the immense display of love here. We almost cover our eyes, veil our eyes, as we struggle to see and to watch and to read the picture that's been painted for us. Yet it's in the very details of the crucifixion, in the pain, in the suffering, and in this immense display of love that we truly see the wonder of the gospel message. Simply put, we deserve, because of our sin, everything that Jesus went through. But we praise Jesus, for he took our place. So as we go through this passage today, Remember these two things. First of all, everything you read that Jesus went through, we are deserving of. And second, because of his love for you, he went through it and took your place. So let us not fear the details. Instead, let us illuminate the details and see the love of Jesus for you and me. Now we head to Mark 15 and we're going to be beginning in verse 16. So go ahead, open those Bibles, Mark 15, and we begin in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, last week in verse 15, Pilate releases Barabbas, the murderer, and sentences Jesus, first of all, to punishment and then to crucifixion. Now, although Pilate had given these orders, he would not carry them out himself. Instead, he had a loyal battalion of soldiers. They were not quite Roman soldiers. They were a hybrid of mercenary and loyal bodyguard to Pilate. They were extreme. They took their duty of protecting the throne of Pilate to great lengths. Now, Pilate's judgment was given for them to obey. In the Latin, it was Ilum Duciad Crucem Placit, translated as the sentence for this man is to be taken to the cross. After the judgment came the instruction, I miles expedi crucem, meaning go, soldier, prepare the cross. These were the words of Pilate. He is to die on the cross and these soldiers were to prepare that cross for him. Now, two things were happening simultaneously. The cross was being prepared and Jesus was going through his initial punishment of scourging. Now, scourging involved lashing Jesus with a lethal whip, one that would tear the skin on the back apart and it would leap deep and painful wounds. 
And these two elements were a fulfilment of Pilate's command, punish him and send him to death. However, there was a time period between the completion of the scourging and Jesus on the cross. And it was in this time period that Jesus would suffer at the hands of Pilate's cruel soldiers. Do you remember what Jesus was accused of? He was accused of blasphemy, declaring himself the king of the Jews. The soldiers picked up on this and mocked this so-called king. They put a purple cloak on him, a sign of royalty and nobility. They placed on his head a crown of thorns, the crown depicting and a sign of kingship. As Jesus stood there, bleeding, in pain, dressed in humiliating clothes, they saluted him in a mocking tone, declaring him King of the Jews. They made Jesus look foolish. They made him suffer. However, their fun and games were not yet over. Verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him off the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The soldiers taunted Jesus, hitting his head, disorientating him and causing even more pain. Now the English translation we have in front of us states that they were spitting on him. But when we go to the original text, I think it's better translated as they kept spitting on him. Now don't skirt over these details. See the reality here. Jesus is in pain, bleeding, He's been made a mockery of, he's hit constantly, and he's now covered in this disgusting spit of these soldiers. And as if this was not humiliating enough, the soldiers fell to their knees and bowed down. The mocking was complete. Anyone looking on would see that Jesus had been completely ridiculed. He was humiliated, and they would know this one truth, that no one would ever dare to claim royal kingship again. What is striking though, is this was all for fun and games for the soldier. This was all about the soldiers getting to be cruel in their sick desire to show power. We know this because they strip Jesus of all they put on him and place him back into his own clothes. This was all a show. They had the power, they had the control, and when they had enough, they tossed him to the side and led him to be crucified. As they led Jesus to be crucified, they would have proclaimed in a loud voice the crime of Jesus so that everyone could hear. They would shout the King of the Jews as they walked. Clearly, in the eyes of these soldiers, this was no king. This man was worthless and they wanted to make sure everyone else felt the same way. Now, before we continue, just pause for a moment. Last week, we saw how Pilate didn't want to be involved. He tried to avoid sentencing Jesus. He tried to step back from it, but he couldn't help himself. He had to see the approval of the people and he had to show his control. I wonder how Pilate felt at this stage. Would he have watched the proceedings? Would he have mourned? Would he have protected himself and hid away from what was happening? You see, it was easy for Pilate to pass judgment. That was the coward's way out. So much harder to actually punish Jesus and see this innocent man taking such a beating. Let's continue in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. As Jesus was led to death, we are introduced to a new character, Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is in North Africa, 
in modern-day Libya near Benghazi. And we're told that Simon is of Cyrene, meaning that he was born there. Now, some have suggested that he has travelled from Cyrene for the Passover. However, the passage tells us that he was coming in from the country. It's likely, considering the time of day, pretty early in the morning, and the proximity to Jerusalem, that Simon was now a resident of the area. Yes, he was from Cyrene. Yes, he was known of being of Cyrene, but he was probably living in the proximity of Jerusalem. And as he walked into the city, he was compelled to carry the cross of Christ. Now, in the society of the time, the people had to obey the orders of the soldiers, for they were deemed as coming direct from Caesar himself. If you refused, your life was under threat. So the soldiers compelled, or I should say, forced Simon to carry the cross. Now, he would not have to carry the whole cross. Rather, it would have been the cross beam. Yet this beam itself weighed about 125 pounds or nearly 10 stone. More than this, it was common for those carrying the beam to be stripped naked and forced to walk. The idea being is it would serve to humiliate the individual and therefore increasing the hatred toward the criminal who would be killed. So Simon would have been forced to walk a long route, naked, carrying this beam on his shoulders through every street and turning with the crime declared to every person who watched on. And Jesus would have followed behind, bleeding, covered in spit, disorientated, mocked, and in extreme pain with every step. They were leading Simon and Jesus to Golgotha, which in the Latin translates as Calvary, which means the place or the hill of the skull. It was a smooth hilltop outside the city walls. And it's interesting to note that to this day, the skull is universally seen as a place of death. It was here at Golgotha, at Calvary, at the place known as the skull, that Jesus would die. Let's continue in our passage. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. At each crucifixion, there would be a group of women ready to give the criminals this sour local wine laced with myrrh. It was a bitter drink and acted as an anaesthetic. It was, in some respects, a mercy drink, awful tasting, but would relieve some of the pain. Jesus was offered this drink in fulfilment to Psalm 69 verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. At Jesus, likely thirsty and in pain, refuses to drink this wine. We're not told here in Mark 15 why Jesus refused, but two explanations are possible. Firstly, many commentators pick up on the fact that Jesus needed all his faculties available to him to see through the crucifixion and to fulfil the salvation plan of God. However, I think the second is particularly interesting. In Mark 14.25, Jesus says at the institution of communion, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus drinks the wine that represents his blood that would flow on the cross, then declares he would not drink of wine until the day it is new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is refusing this wine at the cross, yes, potentially to have all these faculties available, but also in fulfilment to his declaration to the disciples. What is amazing about both of these explanations is that Jesus, in extreme pain and exhaustion, is still focused on the task at hand. 
More than that, he is still able to keep and fulfill his promises. This incredible might of Jesus is that punishment and death will not remove his all-powerful focus to be the saviour of mankind. He knew what he needed to do and he knew he would stick to it throughout. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified Jesus. They stretched out his arms and nailed them to the crossbeam that Simon had carried. They wrapped his feet around the vertical beam and nailed him to it. They hoisted the cross up and there Jesus hung. It was agonising. As the arms stretched out, you could not pull up because you would be pulling against the very nails that held you there. As you hung, your lungs would be desperate for oxygen and to breathe you would need to push up to get air. But every time you would push up, you would push against the nail that had been driven through your feet. Every breath, every moment was anguish. The pain would have been unbearable. Every second was torture. Spurgeon wrote, We took our sins and drove them like nails through his hands and feet. We lifted him high up on the cross of our transgressions, and then we pierced his heart through with the spear of our unbelief. As Jesus went through this agonising torture, at the foot of the cross, the soldiers divided the garments out between them. Again, this was in fulfilment of Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now for the Jew of the time, there were five articles of clothing, the inner robe, the outer robe, sandals, a girdle, and a turban. The soldiers would divide out the clothing and gamble for that outer robe, for the robe was the largest and most significant piece of fabric. Jesus is in agony. The soldiers seeking to gain from his clothing are at his feet. And why was all this happening? Well, here's the crime. He is the king of the Jews. This was the crime of Jesus. This was the title of Jesus. This was Pilate's final show of control. For Pilate had the authority, the power and the control to be able to kill the king of the Jews. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. In this one short sentence, we recognise the fact that the crucifixion was already planned. These two criminals, one on the left and one on the right, were already sentenced to death and hanging by the time Jesus was raised on the cross. And so what is striking is this, Barabbas should have been in the middle of these two criminals. The crucifixion of Barabbas had been planned and it was Jesus that took his place. The just and the righteous, the holy one, dies in the place of the unjust sinner. Now in many translations you will notice that we do not move into verse 28, rather we go straight into verse 29. That is because verse 28 was deemed to be added later as an explanatory verse stating that Jesus was numbered amongst the transgressors. Essentially, it's a verse that already explains verse 27. Jesus was associated with sinners. He was born to a sinner. He was raised by a sinner. He ministered to sinners. He healed and saved sinners. And now he died with sinners. With one crucial element clear throughout though, Jesus himself was not a sinner. He is the righteous, perfect and holy Son of God. 
So we don't move into verse 28, we move into verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The soldiers had mocked Jesus, so now it was the turn of the people. They passed by the site of the crucifixion and mocked him. Now you don't just idly walk past someone being killed. Instead, the people intentionally went near Jesus so they could question him and taunt him. Go on, save yourself, come off that cross and show your power, they screamed in his face as he hung there in agony. However, it was not just Pilate, not just the soldiers, not just the people, but the religious leaders who also mocked Jesus. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Here we have the chief priests and the scribes, the very people that knew the law, that knew the scriptures, and therefore knew that all that was happening before them was a fulfillment to those scriptures. Yet they were blinded by their arrogance and their pride. Look at their mocking tone as they question Jesus. Well, if he saved others, let him save himself. Not only do they challenge him, but they call into question everything he has done in ministry. If he can't save himself, well, then he never really had power in the first place. And how awful that the title of Christ, the title of the King of Israel, was not used in its proper and honourable way, but used as one final taunt against Jesus. If the Christ will come down from the cross and we see it, then we will believe. They were showing their stubbornness to win, to be right, and they were showing their complete unbelief. For we know John eleven forty says, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We do not see and then believe. We believe and then we're able to see. We believe in the name of Jesus and then we can see what's truly happening here. We can see the love of Christ, that he remained on the cross. He took the punishment reserved for sinners because he is the Messiah. We see that when we believe. And the religious leaders simply refused to believe and therefore they couldn't see. Billy Graham was noted to say, God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. It was God saying to the world, I love you. Now next week we'll continue in the passage and look at the death of Jesus. But for now, we need to pause and contemplate and apply these verses to our lives. What do we see in the text that applies to us, that brings transformation and declares the truth every day of our lives? Well, the first thing I want you to see, and I think we need to see, is the love of Christ. I don't think you can escape the love of Christ in this passage. Remember, Jesus didn't deserve to be on the cross. We did. In love, he took our place. He took our punishment. And in love, he provided for us salvation through death on the cross. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. How did God love us? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Friends, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus and Jesus showed his love for you by dying on the cross. 
You see, you were dead in your sin. You were a dead man, dead woman walking because of your sin. You were tarnished by it and you deserved punishment, just like Barabbas, just like the other sinners on the other crosses. The crown of thorns was worn on Jesus' head, though, because he loves you. The whipping was endured because he loves you. The nails were accepted because he loves you. And he suffered what we should have suffered because he loves you. If you're in any doubt today, know this certainty. Jesus didn't die by mistake. He died because he loves you. So the question I find myself asking is, how are you going to respond to that love? Are you going to carry on ignoring it, stating something along these lines, that you're not sure about this Jesus stuff? Are you going to acknowledge the love of Jesus is truly compelling? Will you bow, not like the mocking soldiers, but one who is loved and declare that Jesus is Lord? Will you place your faith in Jesus and his love for you? I pray that you will. The second thing I want us to see is the fulfillment and faithfulness of Christ, the fulfillment and faithfulness of Christ. Did you spot the prophecies were fulfilled through Jesus? Did you notice that Jesus kept his word and promise? Even when suffering, Jesus showed that he can be trusted. Even when it would have been so easy for him to give up, Jesus remained true to the very last breath. Do you know the comfort of a friend who will remain faithful and true? Jesus is that friend. He is the one you can rely on the one you can get comfort from, the one you can shout at and the one you can cry with. He doesn't leave. He promised he wouldn't leave you. He doesn't forget you. He promised he would always remember you. In times of struggle, of loneliness, of despair, Jesus can be trusted to fulfill his promise to never leave or forsake you. So what is holding you back from such a friend? Who can compare to what Jesus has on offer? Don't you just long for a friend that you can completely rely on? Hear the words of an old hymn. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Friends, will you place your faith in Jesus today? Will you take your struggles, your sin, your hopes to Jesus in prayer? I really do pray that you will. A third and finally, I want you to see this in the passage, the endurance of Christ. Finally, it's, is it not incredible that Jesus endured to the very end? The whippings, the spitting, the hitting, the mocking, the nails, the abuse, the humiliation. He endured it all. He took it all. He has experienced pain to the extreme, sorrow to the lowest despair and heartache that truly shatters. If Jesus has been through all of this and he has endured all of this, he knows what you are going through. He knows the pain of failing bodies. He knows the anguish of broken relationships. He knows the evil of enemies. He knows the humiliation of persecution. He knows what you are going through. 
for he has endured it and endured so much more. Psalm 27 and from verse 13 reads, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Friends, my encouragement is this, be strong in the Lord that endured. Take courage in the Lord that endured. Believe in the Lord and his goodness and the goodness of the one that endured. Friends, I've asked you twice now and I ask you a third time, will you place your faith in the Lord that endured so that he could display and show his love for you so that he can provide means of salvation? This is what the crucifixion is about. It's displaying to you two things your desperate need for a saviour because you deserve what Jesus went through and the wonder of salvation given by Jesus. So don't fear the details, embrace them, see what Christ has done for you, but don't be like the soldiers, the crowd, the Pharisees, Pilate, even one of the criminals on the cross and ignore and ridicule and mock the details instead bow down before Jesus, humbly submit to him, praise him for his display of love and hand your life over to Jesus. I pray right now, in fact, I want to really expressly say this. If you are not a Christian and you have gone through this whole sermon and you're at this point, do not leave this point. Give your life to Jesus. See his love for you become a Christian now. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all those who have not seen the details before of the crucifixion, who haven't come before you and bowed their lives down, who have not yet submitted to you, who have not yet got that salvation in their hearts and have been transformed. Father, I pray right now that they would be led to you and that you would draw near to them, that you would show them your love that you would show them the means of salvation from their sin through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are Christians, that they would remind themselves of what Jesus went through for us and that they would recommit their lives, that they would seek to get rid of sin in their lives, to die to that sin, to die to self, and that they would live refreshed and renewed knowing that they are loved and saved by Jesus Christ. And Father, I, I finish my prayer in this, that we are so sorry for our sin that led Jesus to suffer so much for us. Father, I pray that as we head to communion later tonight in that wonderful celebration that we can be finding Jesus because of that salvation granted to us from the cross, I pray that we would lead towards communion with humble hearts, rejoicing that Jesus, yes, has given his life for us, but sorrowful that sin took him to the cross. So Father, I pray this in your precious name. Amen.